Welcome to Engaging with Psychoanalysis. I'm Tom Schumann. I'm a mental health counselor interested in better understanding the theory, history, and practice of psychoanalysis. I aim to do so through discussions with practitioners, thinkers, educators, and others involved in the psychoanalytic tradition. If you're interested in being a guest on Engaging with Psychoanalysis, please email me at engagingwithpsychoanalysis at gmail.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. In this episode, I speak with Nancy McWilliams about the role of personality structure in psychoanalysis. Nancy is a psychoanalytic practitioner and educator. She's also authored several widely read and acclaimed texts, such as Psychoanalytic Diagnosis. Additionally, she's the associate editor of the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual. Enjoy the interview. But, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, actually, just to kind of refresh, I was, I was uh, before, before we started talking, I was skimming Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, uh, the second edition. Um, and... I mean, again, it just kind of strikes me how much more engrossing it is than a lot of other diagnostic, uh, you know, diagnostic, I don't know if you'd call it a diagnostic tool, but books that deal primarily with diagnosis. And, well, uh, I, I did originally write it as a, um, a supplement to uh, the DSM when the DSM switched from uh, one kind of document to another kind of document in 1980, I began seeing it was doing some clinical damage. Uh, the DSM-3 had been rethought uh, to make it easier for researchers to work on specific syndromes of uh, anxiety or depression, for example. But it made it a lot harder for clinicians to understand how to help people. Yeah, it, it sounds like it kind of took the person out of the diagnosis. Yeah, except uh, for personality disorders, which were literally kind of an afterthought. That's why they're at the end of that manual. Uh, I, you know, I, I was first uh, introduced to the DSM when I was an undergrad. So it's like 2013. It was like the year DSM-5 came out. Uh-huh. And, um, I mean, the... Uh, yeah, at that point, the personality disorder, uh, uh, you know, the axes have all been done away with. But so like the personality disorder section, it, it's it's there. It's not it's not thin. It's you know, it's robust enough, but it it's there's very little about personality. In it. Yeah, it's it's a checklist <laughs> just like every other disorder. Yes, yes. And it's very, very limited. Um, it did make certain kinds of research easier. Uh, to recast the DSM in purely descriptive terms. But yeah. it's also kind of strange. In the rest of medicine, we don't classify things based on, let's say, fever disorders, skin rash disorders, limp disorders. Um, we categorize them based on what causes them and what, uh, what we, how we understand them to be expressing underlying kinds of problems. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a peculiar retrogression to think about psychological disorders simply in terms of symptom syndromes, which mean different things in different people. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, 
uh, you know, I think the charitable reading of it would be it's a reflection of, of kind of the agnosticism of, of the ultimate cause of mental disorders. But I think, you know, the American Psychiatric yeah. Association, it's probably more to do with, you know, uh, a reliance on a biological model that hasn't really been etched out yet, I would think. Yeah, I think so. And in DSM-3, which was what started this shift, um, was very much influenced by some researchers interested in severe mood disorders. Hmm. And those are among the things that are fairly describable in sort of present versus absent categories. But most psychological suffering, if you really want to understand it, you know, you you can describe a limp or a fever or a skin rash in terms of present versus absent categories, but it doesn't tell you much about how to treat it. Uh, and the same thing is true for anxiety or depression or an eating disorder or even an addiction or post-traumatic state. Yeah, I, I, and I, I would think also like with the personality disorders, it becomes incoherent when you try to describe it just by presentation. Um, something that's come up in, in, at this point I think every episode of this is, I, you know, I, I mentioned that in the, the description of borderline personality disorder, it talks about a deficit of self. I don't know if that's the exact language, but, you yeah. know, what does that mean? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, there are theorists who can tell you exactly what it means, um, <clears throat> but it, it, it leaves that, it's interesting that the DSM framers, who I think were quite well-intentioned, thought that a certain kind of clinical knowledge was going to survive. But what's happened is the DSM has become a language in itself, and, and older clinical knowledge is not necessarily surviving. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, Otto Kernberg could, can easily describe what are the indications that a person doesn't have a sense of the continuity of self um, just by describing certain kinds of behaviors and attitudes that you can elicit with good questioning from patients. Hmm. But the diagnostic manual doesn't go into those at all. Uh, no, and, and uh, you know, broadly, neither does undergraduate uh, psychological training or um, your graduate level. I mean, I'm a counselor. I, I really, personality is not something that, we really grappled with in, uh, yes. in my education and, uh, reading your, you know, when I was, um, uh, an, an intern, I, I was, uh, lent two books. One was, uh, your, your book, psychoanalytic diagnosis and the other, uh, I, I think it was called neurotic styles by Shapiro. Oh, Shapiro. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this was the first time that in a real way, I, somebody had, had had even brought put personality on the table as anything other than personality disorders. Yeah, you're you're not alone. I hear these complaints all the time, and partly what you're the victim of there is that there has been a slow estrangement between the world of the practicing clinician and the world of the academic. Mm -hmm for many complex reasons, but from the academic side, uh, it used to be true that if you were interested in clinical psychology or abnormal psychology, you would have a small practice. Mm -hmm. But 
uh, it's become so hard to get tenure, promotion. Uh, you have to spend so much money chasing grants that if you're an academic now, it would be professional suicide to spend several hours of your week seeing patients. So academics have lost empathy with what it's really like to be a therapist, and they tend to define the field based on what's researchable most easily, which are you know short-term treatments for not very severe versions of symptom syndromes. Uh, so what they can easily study and amass um, good CVs about have come to uh, dominate the field. And of course, when people want to know what's happening in counseling or clinical psychology or psychiatry, they go to uh, the universities uh, and they, they talk to academics. Uh, they don't talk to therapists who tend to be less organized and often their own agencies or offices. Uh, so the academics are sort of defining the field in ways that do violence to actual clinical experience. Hmm. And from the clinician side, especially the psychoanalytic side, uh, we share some blame for this because we uh, isolated psychoanalytic training outside the universities for the most part. And we also had an attitude of arrogance, especially toward research. I say we, many analysts did, and it really offended academics who, uh, who believe rightly that we should do research on everything we can. Uh, I, I, I almost get the sense sometimes that, you know, psychoanalysis broadly, um, there's almost a sense of being wounded by uh, the 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 rejection in the you know in the second half of the 20th century, but <laughs> and that it, it there is a sense of like okay well I'm I'm going to kind of take my ball and go home. <laughs> Maybe I do remember a study that the American Psychoanalytic Association did about attitudes towards psychoanalysis, and they discovered that. Um, uh, among the general populace, there was a great deal of interest in psychoanalytic ideas. Uh, but I remember the title of the article was something like, it's not that they don't like psychoanalysis, they don't like us. <laughs> <laughs> they experienced the analysts as know-it-alls and arrogant and uh, evasive uh, to, to their legitimate questions. And you, you only need a few such people to um, hmm. really give a profession of black eye. But, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, uh, you know, I, maybe it hasn't been publicized the same way, but I, I don't know that the situation is much different in the other uh, psychotherapeutic professions. You know, you hear, you know, people just completely turned off uh, to therapy by a few... Um, few arrogant or, you know, in worse situations, uh, boundaryless uh, practitioners. This is true. And uh, eventually there will be a corrective to those, too. The, there will be a backlash against some of the more arrogant versions, for example, of short-term CBT therapies, where they're very useful for very high-functioning patients who make good collaborations with um, the therapist. But they can re-traumatize people who are very troubled, multiply traumatized, have personality disorders, or in any other way are, are the kind of people who are more likely to be com coming to actual therapists. Uh, 
Oh, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, you, you think of somebody coming down, the, the sitting uh, down in the, in the counseling room to uh, be listened to and have a therapeutic conversation, and they more or less have a toolbox thrown at them. Yes, yes. Yeah. I remember when I first realized that the um, sort of the whole descriptive psychiatric diagnosis um, meme <laughs> was doing damage was in the 80s when I was, uh, or maybe it was the early 90s, I was consulting to a hospital, very uh, well-respected hospital, and when psychiatrists bring you out to interview you, they want you to interview their most difficult inpatients in front of the psychiatric residents. So they had two very problematic, uh, hard-to-understand uh, psychotic people that they had me interview in front of the residents, and both the interviews went pretty well. The patient told me stuff that they hadn't told anybody on the hospital staff, so I felt good. But as I'm walking out, I hear one of the residents say, that is a great line she uses. I'm, I'm going to use that line to mm. interview people. And I stopped and I said, I'm sorry, I was eavesdropping. What line that I said arrested your attention? And the guy said, can you say more about that? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, this was a smart, highly motivated person, but he'd been taught via the DSM. Is it more than two weeks or less than two weeks that you've experienced this symptom? Check the list. So the whole clinical um, wisdom about interviewing was beginning to be set aside by these uh, checklists. Hmm. And you seem to, you know, in your writing, offer a a much less mechanistic, if that's the right word, uh, approach to engaging with and understanding people. I hope so. (laughs) If I went to a therapist, which I've done a couple of times in my life, I want to feel like they're interested in understanding me as a a unique person, not that they're applying some formulaic um, diagnostic code to me or some formulaic version of a treatment protocol. Uh, So I, I can only assume that most people feel that way. That's certainly my own clinical experience after... 45 or more years now. And, and ultimately, your approach to psychoanalytic diagnosis is about personality construction, which, again, never a term I heard in my education or training, which, but it makes complete I – mean, maybe that's not the, the, the phrase that you use, but it makes sense that there's uh, – if there's a personality disorder, there – that people have a, a general order to their personality, to their character. <laughs> yes, yes. And there are high-functioning, highly um, uh, adaptive, happy, uh, productive people uh, in, in any kind of category. Their personality isn't disordered, but maybe it's generally... Uh, They have depressive dynamics, or maybe they have somewhat narcissistic dynamics or somewhat hysterical dynamics. Uh, That's just having a personality. It's not having a disorder. But if you do understand that personality, you know something about how the person understands the world, what um, kinds of coping mechanisms they have to deal with it, um, what would be most likely to influence them. Uh, therapeutically, and so on. 
Um, what this is this is maybe a, a little tangential because uh, yeah, uh, but uh, once I, I have a clinical interest in uh, in obsessive compulsive disorder, and uh -huh. um, engaging with the uh, the personality, the psychoanalytic personality literature, including your own. Um, I, you know, that's where I'll kind of gravitate towards is like, okay, the obsessive personality. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, so much in, you know, abnormal psych classes and stuff is like this hard distinction between OCD and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Yes. And, but when in engaging with uh, the psychoanalytic literature, that seems like a much more porous distinction. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Although, you know, anybody can get an obsession or a compulsion, anybody with any kind of personality, if certain kinds of features of their environment um, make it adaptive. Yeah. Uh, but it, they're most likely, uh, obsessive compulsive disorders are most likely to be developed by people with a tendency toward obsessive compulsive Personality, yeah. Hmm. And, and how, what, what is the term you use? Would you say personality styles or personality structures? or? Um, I tend to talk about styles, types, or patterns when I'm hmm. talking about differences in the kinds of uh, defenses, um, uh, unconscious belief systems, uh, the, the organizing emotions um, and, and other aspects of personality. Um, I talk about levels of organization, though, and that pretty much follows Otto Kernberg's idea of levels of severity. And the idea there is uh, you can be, let's use the example of obsessive-compulsive. You can be an obsessive-compulsive person um, who is you know, very high-functioning, um, who comes for, let's say, uh, some kind of compulsion or obsession to therapy, uh, approaches the therapist with the attitude that uh, this has worsened or started at a particular point, and the patient remembers the point you know, before it was bad like this. Um, they treat the therapist like a colleague in trying to investigate this and uh, help remediate it. Um, they uh, they see that it's kind of crazy, so they can have some uh, objectivity about it. And that person is quite easy to help. You know, a few sessions of exposure sometimes helps that person very well. But then there are people with exactly the same symptoms who say they've always been that way. Um, that their parents had rituals too, that they don't see what's wrong with it, um, that they were sent to treatment by other people because their compulsions were bothering everybody else. They treat the therapist with suspicion as if you might contaminate them or harm them if you try to encourage them not to go to do their rituals. They have an almost psychotic idea that if they, if they don't do what they have to do, they are literally in mortal danger. Uh, those people sometimes take 
a couple of years before they even get that their obsessive tendencies are restricting their life in ways that don't have to be true. Mm-hmm. So that's you know the difference between a person who is structured at a healthy or a neurotic general level and a person who is down toward the psychotic end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it makes a huge difference for psychotherapy which one you are. So you can't say that obsessional people are sicker than, let's say, hysterical or depressive people, because that's, uh, in, in any of those uh, categories, you could be either at the healthy end or the very troubled end of the spectrum. And that's another thing that DSM just doesn't look at at all. It's, it's interesting how the spectrum kind of creeps in, like it's done with autistic uh, mm-hmm. issues now. There's a spectrum that's finally being acknowledged there, but there's a spectrum in everything else, too. Um, and it sounds like maybe more than one spectrum, maybe more than one continuum. Uh, like, you know, um, it might be a play, because that that um, that that continuum from neurotic to psychotic is at play in all the personality styles, if, my, if I'm understanding correctly. I think so, yeah. yeah. Can, can I think you, that's what clinical evidence would say. The, and, and that spectrum, you know, that is most non... You know, I, I've, I've only uh, been exposed to it in the past year or two. I think most non-psychoanalytic clinicians... Uh, would say the same or don't really have any exposure to it. Could, could, you, could you speak to that a little bit? Uh, the, well, it's just the idea that um, nature doesn't really have joints at which you can cut it easily. And people are combinations of things. Uh, there's no such thing as a pure type of just about anything, but especially human beings. Um, so, for example, there's kind of a continuum between uh, how much you have sort of depressive dynamics and how much you have self-defeating dynamics. Mm-hmm. Some people have a lot of the former and none of the latter, and some people have a lot of the latter and very little of the former. But that, those kinds of issues, because they both involve uh, self-hatred, um, can be very enmeshed in a certain way, and therapists have to figure out uh, something about that when they're dealing with any individual person. Um, there's a kind of continuum between, uh, from, let's say, normal issues of self-esteem, normal, healthy narcissism. We all want to be recognized. We want to um, feel valued. Uh, we want to feel like we matter. Uh, those are normal narcissistic concerns, all the way down to what um, has been called malignant narcissism, the person who cares so much about getting applause and being seen as powerful, famous, beautiful, and wealthy, uh, that they use other people simply as objects and not at all as relating to them as subjects. And that leads into uh, psychopathy, or what the DSM has called the antisocial personality disorder. That's all on a continuum, too. Because if you really, really lack any kind of empathy for other people as subjects of their lives, 
then you are uh, pretty much uh, on a power trip where you're just using them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we've often called psychopathy, which is a term I prefer to antisocial personality disorder because you can have antisocial um, uh, behavior and not at all be psychologically psychopathic. I mean, you can steal because your family needs food or because you have a drug addiction. Uh, you can end up in a, uh, a prison for many reasons. Maybe you're part of a criminal subculture, but you're loyal to people and there are people you love in that subculture. That's very different from somebody who really uh, is incapable of love. So th- those are some examples of uh, continuums that um, clinicians think in. I mean, clinicians naturally think in continuums. Uh, figuring out whether someone actually has a, a disorder of personality is a matter not of the type of personality, but how rigid is it? Uh, can the person ever behave in an, another way? You know, can the extremely detailed uh, oriented obsessive person ever see the whole big picture or ever be impressionistic? Um, and is it maladaptive? And part of that depends on the context the person is in. Uh, like some so-called paranoia is actually just the perception of real threat, mm. even though it looks exactly like paranoia. To, be, to really be paranoid, what a therapist would say is you have to have been disowning some aspect of yourself and see it as outside the self. Like, I'm not the one who's shiftless and lazy. It's those other people. Um, I'm not the one who is sexually interested. It's those, those people who don't control their sexuality, and so forth. That's paranoia. But being afraid um, that the government is spying on you when you're in a country with an authoritarian government that spies on people is not paranoid. It's just fearful. So, so diagnosis and even, you know, just understanding of a client and uh, less formally, it's contextual. Yes, it's dimensional and contextual and it's inferential. In other words, what does this symptom mean? Hmm. Um, are you depressed because you have an unmourned loss? Are you depressed because some experience triggered a traumatic memory that you encoded in your affect system, but not your um, episodic memory? Uh, Are you depressed because you haven't reached um, your ideal uh, notion of who you are or the achievement you thought you should be able to get? are you are you depressed because you have unreasonable expectations? Are you depressed because somebody criticized you, and whenever you're criticized, you you have a child's belief that you know the grown-ups must be right, that must be you, uh, and so you go into a depression. So uh, clinicians have to be inferential about anything that we see with people. The symptom tells us very little without without the without the larger story it sounds like well that i think that's been clinical experience you it, it's very seldom that uh, one symptom 
can be the whole story. Hmm. Um, occasionally, you know, somebody who uh, develops an addiction because they were prescribed oxycodone comes in with an addiction that's not necessarily uh, a result of any adverse childhood experiences or um, efforts to deal with um, a difficult reality. Uh, they just developed an addiction. That, that's, it's not impossible that a symptom is kind of freestanding like that. But usually symptoms are multi-determined and they tell you a lot about um, the person's personality and values and main emotions and how they've gotten through life and who they identified with and how they support their self-esteem and other issues. I would, I would think that for some clinicians, it would be this, this approach to client or patient understanding might be a little intimidating. I think there, you know, there, uh, I could, I could say myself in my like abnormal psych class, when you're introduced to the DSM, you're like, no, oh, this is a handy checklist. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> end up bearing out like that, but, um, I, I think maybe, uh, you're being very honest about, uh, about, the entirety of the task. Yeah, and as a person who trains beginners in it, I agree. It's overwhelming. We have a hundred years of clinical research, theory, observation, and it's just um, it's just overwhelming. And there are different ways to slice up the pie, and the. The DSM is not a bad place to start. It's just not nearly enough. When you're first getting to know a patient, what what how how does this this more would you agree with the term holistic? Yeah, like, I would. This more holistic. how does in what ways does it kind of look different than a um then what has I don't even want to say like what is the norm because I don't I don't think most clinicians sit there. I, I know most clinicians don't sit down with the DSM and have a super mechanistic approach to trying to understand. It's just that's the only tool that they they really have. But in what ways does it look different than either than what than what it, it might look like for clinicians without a more substantive tool, such as such as uh, your book on psychoanalytic diagnosis. Uh, how might it look different from that? Um, are you by any chance familiar with um, the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual? It's a, an international project that I co-edited with Vittorio Lingiardi in Rome, um, which is not just about personality, but symptom syndromes, and uh, developmental achievements as well. Is that something in your library? Uh, no, mm -hmm. no, it's not. Okay, because that is a, that's a, a much more um, extensive way of thinking about different elements of diagnosis. Uh, so personality is only part of it. Uh, you want to know things like uh, 
what developmental phase is the person in and what developmental phase did the person maybe have trouble with growing up. Maybe they had a really good first um, nine years and then they got into middle school and they were bullied and that whole area is fraught. Uh, you know, it depends on the person. But certainly that's another part of it, looking at people developmentally. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of how it actually looks in the consulting room, I can only uh, describe how I interview patients, and uh, that probably differs from my colleagues, but I'm guessing if we're open-ended enough, the same material eventually comes in. Uh, I usually just ask the person, how can I help you? And they start talking about their problem. And uh, I listen to them and listen for the themes that uh, pervade their story. And I'll ask them questions like, how long have you struggled with this? What's your own understanding of uh, how this uh, came to be? Uh, what are your own goals for psychotherapy? Um, I will tend to... Uh, not to ask a lot of historical stuff right away. I, I mostly want to know current stuff like, um, you know, what is their relationship to substances? Uh, what is their general relationship status? Um, have they experienced a recent trauma? So we tend to start in the present, here and now. And usually by the end of a, an initial session, if the patient and I have decided that we have pretty good chemistry together as a psychotherapy team, I ask them you know, if they have any questions about it, and then I explain um, psychoanalytic therapy, which increasingly people don't really know about. It used to be sort of in the culture understood that you go to a therapist and they expect you to talk and they will listen and they'll try to help you get more into the feelings of what you're talking about and make sense of your patterns. Uh, and now I find I often have to say that to people, that that's how this works. Mm. That, you know, I, and then I'll say, you know, the next session what I'd like to do is take a really detailed history from you so I can understand the context of all that you've been describing to me today. Is that okay with you? Uh, I'll ask you a lot of intrusive questions. You can tell me if any of them are too intrusive and you don't want to answer them. That's fine. And at the end of the first session, I ask them if they have any questions for me and if they're reasonable questions like my training or uh, if I have children or you know things that I think um, the patient has a right to know, um, I I'll answer them. Um, if they're if they're too intrusive, uh, like uh, for example, once a patient said to me, "Have you ever had a lesbian relationship?" I, I just said, "You know, that feels a little too private to me mm -hmm. to to tell you." But uh, I would be very interested in why that's important to you, and if if you'll let me know why it would matter a lot, um, then we can work with that. So usually they ask me simple things like, um, "Do you feel you can help me?" Or um, do you feel like you have an understanding of this problem? And uh, I'll just be honest. Um, and then the second session, I take a 
detailed history. And then at the end of that, I put out usually a couple of thoughts that connects the past with the present and see if that feels right to them. And, and then I say something like, okay, from, from here on, I think uh, the ball will be more in your court and I may be quite quiet for a while as I try to understand you. Um, it's important that you try to say everything including any negative reactions you have to me or the therapy. And this is not like a social event where you have to preserve my feelings. Uh, so we'll get started next time with you're just trying to talk as freely as possible about your life. So that's a very different thing from, okay, now we have the DSM category and we're going to apply the following technique to it. Now, there's a lot of talk these days about so-called evidence-based therapies, but I would say the evidence for the style that I use is robust. There's a tremendous amount of evidence about the importance of making a relationship and the patient feeling safe and the patient feeling able to say anything and the patient feeling they won't be shamed. All those have been studied empirically at great length, so I think I'm doing an evidence-based therapy when I do this. Yeah, my understanding is it's pretty well accepted that the therapeutic relationship is the primary variable of change. Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting about psychoanalysis and, uh, you know, um, to some extent, person-centered therapy as well is it's yeah. thought very thoughtful about that relationship and has a working model of how that relationship works. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, the thing that I think psychoanalysis really has is a, a lot of thoughtfulness about the presenting problem. And that, that, that kind of comes through in this. It's, it's, uh, and what you're describing is you're, it doesn't sound like you're rushing in to, you know, trying to fit the per, what the person's telling you into a, a box. You're, you're taking kind of a slow, thoughtful approach. Yeah, because you, you can't just assume you know. <laughs> a lot of the psychoanalytic attitude, despite the fact that some arrogant analyst gave the field the bad name, is taking the position of not knowing and expecting to be surprised. Uh, you can't go into helping people with the idea that you're a know-it-all. Um, there are some patients who like that, but um, if you fall into that role, I think you're kind of infantilizing them. <laughs> you know, you're giving them the know-it-all authority that they want to believe is out there in the world rather than strengthening their own capacity to evaluate what they should do and how they're going to fix this. You know, I, 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 I feel like um, if someone were to do a kind of brisk reading of, uh, uh, well, I, I'm, you know, I keep bringing up psychoanalytic diagnosis because it's, it's the text you wrote that I'm, I'm familiar with. Um, th there's the risk that they would read it almost as this kind of... Uh, <sighs> Almost like reading uh, a manual in astrological types in this kind of 
like very prescriptive and reductive way, which when you actually do read it, that's not, that is not the case. Um, I'm so glad you said that because that's my worst fear about that book. And in some cases, that fear has been realized. It's been translated into 20 languages. And sometimes when I teach in other countries, especially countries that have had some authoritarian uh, tendencies, like uh, Eastern European countries or China, I get the sense that the translation has been like in this authoritative tone that here's what you need to know about this personality and here's what you need to know about this personality, not <laughs> as a sort of... Um, way of helping people generally bring order out of chaos. You know? Well, I, I wonder if it's also just a little bit of the human, uh, you know, we all kind of, there is a little bit of a desire to fit ourselves into types and fit other people into types. Um, so, I mean, I'll admit that, like, as much as I know it shouldn't be read that way, sometimes I'll be, I'll, I've picked it up and be like, where am I in this book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, many people tell me that. Uh, yeah. It's so interesting. I, I, I often get um, people saying, I saw myself in chapter so-and-so, or I saw myself in every chapter except so-and-so. Or the, What's most interesting to me is that I, I actually get letters of appreciation from people who are self-diagnosed as schizoid. That's the only group I get fan letters from because they tend to feel like somebody understands introversion in depth without pathologizing it. So that makes me very happy that they, that they feel seen and understood. But it does run, the book does run the risk of being uh, used to reify people. And I'm guilty too of thinking, Oh, yeah, I can see definitely you're borderline or, you know, you're paranoid. But that's always reductive and it never captures the full human being. Yeah, I, th I think it's it's probably just a, a little bit of we're, we're interested in ordering things and organizing things and maybe just something to be, you know, for <laughs> that we all have to watch out for a bit. Yes. So... In your approach to uh, diagnosis, it's you're you kind of seem to integrate a lot of schools of psychoanalytic thought. Um, yes, I'm wondering if you could talk more about that, about your your approach and your theoretical orientation. Um, I think most psychoanalytic therapists start out being very um, taken with one theorist's ways of uh, explaining human beings. And for me, that was Freud. Mm. Um, I, my own personality is uh, on the hysterical side, and Freud was very interested in hysterical dynamics. And reading him made me feel like, oh, I've always known this, but I couldn't have articulated this. Uh, other people have that reaction to Carl Jung's work or Harry Stack Sullivan's work or Heinz Kohut's work or Lou Aaron's work or Jessica Benjamin's work, you know, and they will, they'll become, as I did, 
kind of uh, an enthusiast for that way of thinking. But as soon as you get into clinical practice, you realize the limitations of that. Mm. And it's rare for people to remain uh, wed to one theory at the expense of others. Most actual practicing clinicians integrate things. This patient makes Melanie Klein look good. This patient, Freud, wouldn't have had a clue how to think about, but Beyond Wood, for example. Um, there are some loyalists among theorists who kind of fight it out, but in actual practice, I think most clinicians are like me. Uh, they, uh, they draw from whatever theories illuminate the kinds of psychology that they're clinically working with. Um, you know, if you're, if you're working with uh, patients who are trauma victims, um, cohort is, is not going to be as useful to you as somebody like Richard Chevitz, who has integrated neuroscience and the understanding of trauma with psychoanalytic relational theory. Uh, so I think I'm typical of therapists in being integrative. Um, Roy Schaefer did a nice paper years ago uh, called On Being an Analyst of One Kind or Another. I think that's the title. It's not as close to that. <laughs> and he described how we all start out as devotees of one orientation and then slowly add insights from others. And we, we need to do this because otherwise it's too overwhelming for just the reasons that you mentioned before. There's just too much out there. So most of us start one place and then expand. I think that ha that's true also of um, one place I expanded was from a psychoanalytic into a general humanistic understanding. And I also studied with some family systems people like Monica McGoldrick. And um, I've been influenced by cognitive behavioral colleagues uh, who sometimes have very nice ways of thinking about the issues that uh, come up for all of us clinically. I figure we're all looking at the same suffering being, and we have different languages and different angles of vision. And it seems like, you know, in the field broadly, some of that is even forming into new approaches i mean you know even uh i don't know a ton about uh internal family systems but it borrows a lot from psychodynamic thinking is, is my understanding yeah um but incorporates uh, you know other uh other modalities as does um Oh, why is this? Just, oh, like schema therapy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, psychodynamic and uh, cognitive therapeutic thinking. Yeah, they often invent different language uh, for the same phenomenon, which makes it difficult. But inevitably, therapists, you know, need fresh metaphors for things. Yeah. Uh, so it seems to be something that just happens. Uh, and I... Your writing is is pretty jargon free. And, uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I think that's why um, you know a, a professor of mine that one of the reasons when I was like oh you know I'm getting kind of interested in psychodynamic thinking yours was the book he handed to me. 
that and because it is so radically different from what you're exposed to in a graduate program uh, yeah. in counseling. Yeah, uh, it's it's so sad because if you read um, DSM three through four TR, they all say you know this manual is not intended to be a substitute for clinical judgment or clinical wisdom and knowledge, and uh, upsettingly that caveat has been removed from DSM five as if this is all you need to know, guys. Um, they they clearly thought clinical knowledge would continue to exist along with this more categorizing um, knowledge. But several things happened there. First, the drug companies started claiming that they could uh, heal depression and anxiety much better than psychotherapy. And so therapists got busy doing research, um, short-term research on symptoms themselves to prove what we already knew, which was that Good psychotherapy can usually uh, help those conditions as much as and as fast as medication. Uh, so, you know, people like um, Barlow, for example, did a lot of studies that established this. But in the process, we kind of identified with the way drug companies think about psychotherapy, which is you got these symptoms. Uh, if they're present, they're a problem. If they're absent, it's good, and that's what therapy is about. <laughs> Whereas previously, I think therapists would tell you, and I think most practicing therapists will still tell you, that symptoms kind of, they wax and wane, you know, and that sometimes they appear to be worse when the person's actually moving forward. Mm -hmm. So let, let's say the person uh, gets more anxious because they're trying new and much more uh, healthy behaviors, uh, you don't consider yourself a failure because they're temporarily more anxious. Or maybe they are grieving some loss that they've been using denial about for a decade or two, and they'll look more depressed, and they'd probably even measure more depressed on a Beck depression inventory. But they're going through a process that's healing. So symptoms are a very narrow lens to look at things. At, but we kind of, in in the process of proving that the drug companies were not right about what they could do with symptoms, we got very focused on, oh, what are some cool ways to reduce symptoms of things? Yeah, and and I mean, as we mentioned before, we we don't really even know what these are symptoms of. Like, I, I mean, there's no paradigm of. Uh, what the underlying mechanisms of mental disorders are. Um, so uh, kind of as you say, who's to say someone isn't just getting worse before they get better? Uh, it's, it's, the, the, it's dehumanizing to, to view someone so much on the, with the lens of immediate functionality. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think most practicing clinicians would see it that way, too. People are more complicated than that. Hmm. What, um, oh, I, as sometimes happens, a, a thought just flew out of my head. 
Oh, uh, I, ha- I had a thought I can mention in, in the absence of your head coming up with something <laughs> to ask me. Um, one other worry I have had about the diagnosis book is that people think that that maybe that's all you need to know are these personality differences and different levels. And first of all, that book does not cover all the potential types of personality. There's not a chapter on phobic ways of organizing the world or sadistic ones um, or dependent. I mean, it's just I, I kept that book to categories with which I had a lot of clinical familiarity and that were particularly common. But also, um, and as a separate issue, a lot of things influence people that have nothing to do with those personality types. For example, it matters whether you were adopted, uh, whether you're a twin, uh, whether you were sexually abused, uh, whether you're from a particular religious group, uh, what your ethnicity was, what's the culture from which you came, um, what's your socioeconomic status, have you struggled with poverty? I mean, so many psychological issues don't have to do so much with personality issues as they might have to do with uh, race or um, ability or um, various kinds of uh, minority status or language. Um, So I I worry that people will think that um, what I put out there to help beginning therapists organize this stuff is comprehensive. I mean, it tries to be somewhat comprehensive within what it's looking at, but what it's looking at is very incomplete as far as the whole human condition. And I feel like to um, to, to, take, to pick up a book like that and expect it to account for all areas of human existence and you know everything that contributes to one's you know mental state at a given time is there would be a pretty unfair treatment to to that this book or any book yeah <laughs> i certainly wouldn't want it held up to that standard but you know on that point um do all of those contextual factors are are they in addition to personality, or do they also um, inform personality? I mean, if you're adopted, that's a huge early life experience. Uh, and, to, you know, to whatever um, your ethnic identity might mean, that, that immediately, it, one, it, uh, it informs how people in the larger world uh, interact with you. And also, you're... you're your familial culture um, has all sorts of patterns and all these things that I would imagine would inform your personality organization. Yes, um, certainly that's true. Um, I guess I would say that sometimes what you want to work with clinically isn't so much personality as um, some of these other issues. But yeah, I think those inevitably... um, intermingle with personality. One thing that has interested me about the diagnosis book, the first edition of which came out in 1994, um, 
And I, I hadn't expected it to be translated into other languages, but it kind of hit a sweet spot, and it's allowed me to you know, meet therapists all over the world in very different cultures. And what interests me is they all recognize the types that are in the book, but they will tell me that in their culture, they don't see um, some types very often, and they see some types a lot more. Mm. Um, in Japan, for example, they told me that somatic ways, or what in the in the psychodynamic diagnostic manual we called a somatizing personality, that those are m much more common ways that people um, express uh, their mental suffering than is true here. Uh, when I taught in Singapore, uh, they, they, I asked them, um, when I was teaching about narcissistic personality, uh, I said, in, in highly organized, smaller cultures, we don't see this as much. Do you see a lot of it here? And they said, no. I said, well, what's common here? And they said, um, obsessive compulsive personality. We all have our rituals. <laughs> and I, I said, do you think you could uh, identify someone who was narcissistic? Uh, this was 20 years ago. They said, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I think you've got the concept. <laughs> I, I, I would wonder, uh, I mean, and obviously, yeah, that would be perhaps a very prototypical uh, case, but I would wonder if, you know, um, cross-cultural, uh, uh, you know, uh, clinical experiences, um, if it might, because, you know, I would wonder if a clinician from Singapore might uh, have a patient from the United States and see certain elements of our culture that are, are, are perhaps sort of universal, but uh, among, well, not universal, but widespread among Americans and say, oh, th this person has narcissistic personality disorder or has a narcissistic personality organization when uh, when really maybe they're uh, and vice versa uh, can uh, cultural patterns be confused for uh, individual patterns like that uh, absolutely personality? <laughs> yes they can and they often are hmm. uh, and and we in our country and in Western cultures generally are frequently guilty of this we understand more collectivist cultures as having pathological dependency, mm -hmm. um, where they may experience normative people from our cultures as having pathological lack of uh, attachment and interdependency. So I, I remember um, learning this originally from uh, a graduate student from uh, South Asia, who found that Indian students were, or Indian patients were more often diagnosed as borderline because, uh, according to her, in India, uh, family boundaries were not quite the same, and several generations lived together, and separation individuation didn't look the same as it looked in the United States. So we were pathologizing a whole group of people 
um, based on Western norms of separation individuation. So I would imagine that the clinical task there is not is not to change, you know, uh, those patterns. If if, if somebody is uh, has emigrated to the United States and uh, and their cultural um, background causes some difficult some uh, difficulty fitting in, but more to help navigate those those differences. Um, Yes, um, some psychotherapy is a kind of acculturation, I think, um, helping people make a transition to adapting to a culture that has different premises from the ones that they came from. Uh, and, and the same would be true for, let's say, an Asian therapist trying to help an American uh, expat or uh, migrant in their culture, uh, they would have to, to some extent, educate them about uh, the expectations of the culture as part of the psychotherapy process. I remember Frieda from Reichmann, who was one of the great um, European psychoanalysts, especially with uh, psychotic patients. She was the uh, therapist in that book that was very popular in my early years of training, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Mm. Um, uh, that therapist was based on her. Uh, Frieda from Reichman talked about immigrating to the United States and having a female patient who cried in the session and then pulled out her, um, this would have been in the 1950s, pulled out her compact makeup and powdered her nose. And from Reichman thought this was incredibly rude. Mm. And she was about to interpret this as... Uh, you just um, disappeared from relationship with me and decided to attend to your vanity rather than following up on what you were crying about. And then she thought, no, maybe this is an American thing. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe they powder their noses after they cry. And she was later grateful that she had you know, uh, held herself in. But I, I'm sure those kinds of mistakes happen all the time. And you can't, as a therapist, um, be sure that you're not going to make them. You just have to try to make a relationship in which your client tells you when you've made them and corrects you. And uh, you can apologize for your lack of knowledge and move on. Mm. The, you know, I want to be careful here because I, I don't want to equate uh, cultural difference from... Um, uh, personality idiosyncrasies, um, but I'm wondering if the task is similar when somebody. And I know I know we're focusing a lot specifically on personality, but I, I'm wondering uh, if when somebody presents with a certain personality style or uh, perhaps the characterological disorder to one extent or the other, how much of the work is to alter or correct uh, or, you know, to carefully use the, the metaphor uh, to almost acculturate to, to, you know, common ways of being. Um, and how much of it is to negotiate that difference to, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't want to 
to get too tangential, but like I think about the difference between um, transference focused psychotherapy and DBT, these two approaches to uh-huh. uh, borderline uh, personality disorder. And the way that, you know, transference psychotherapy, transference focused psychotherapy seems to be sold is this makes a, a th- this makes changes to the self. Whereas DBT is, is very, from what I've seen and from what I've read, it is, you know, also is very effective in making these positive changes to uh, behavior and, uh, you know, giving people tools. Um, I'm wondering if that, if it, but, and again, my understanding is transference-focused psychotherapy is also very effective. Um, but I, I'm wondering how much of it is an altering of the self. Is it, is psychoanalysis about personality change in a way that other psychotherapeutic approaches aren't? Uh, I do think it's about trying to influence personality at a deeper level than some other therapies do, but within limits. I mean, there's an old saying from way back when we were talking in sort of Freudian drive terms. Um, You can change the economics, but not the dynamics. Hmm. And what that meant was you you can't change a hysterical person into an obsessional one or a narcissistic person into, you know, a a completely um, masochistically unselfish person. Uh, You are stuck with the kind of general personality type that, that you developed um, pretty early. Um, mm. That can be uh, radically damaged by trauma, but in general, people are pretty consistent over time. However, you can help them uh, become a much healthier version of a hysterical or an obsessional or a narcissistic person. So in that sense, it is more like helping them get more range uh, develop some other ways of thinking about things, uh, understand that other people may think about them differently. Uh, mentalization-based therapy is another um, approach to borderline uh, psychology that puts a lot of emphasis on trying to understand that other people's motivations are different from your own and should be appreciated uh, as such. And you know, that's, an, that's still another angle of vision on some issues that trouble borderline people. So uh, I, I am, of course, a, a partisan of psychoanalytic ways of thinking about these things. It, it, psychoanalysis has been around longer and has a, a long self-critical tradition and uh, I think has attained a great deal of depth. But I would never... Uh, consider saying in general that it's superior to DBT because uh, dialectical behavior therapy helped millions of people, literally, that were not helped by then-current models of psychoanalytic treatment. Marsha Linehan, who suffered terribly with borderline dynamics herself and later wrote about this, Uh, was hospitalized again and again and was given psychoanalytically oriented treatments that had been developed for 
different kinds of problems. They didn't touch her, and she made the resolve uh, amid her suicide attempts that if she ever survived these hospitals, she was going to develop uh, a way to help people like her. And she did. And I admire her enormously for that. And she she, she was influenced by Otto Kernberg. Uh, he hired her for his um, program at um, uh, Cornell Westchester. Uh, so she wasn't ultimately anti-psychoanalytic, but she added something that uh, psychoanalysts of her time were not paying attention to. So I'm not sure you can say that that's not as deep, you know, when it helps people who weren't helped by other methods. It's just a little different. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I hope I didn't uh, set up an antagonist, uh, frame it as an antagonism when I meant to do it as a distinction, because... Again, I really, I, I, I you know, I, 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 I've seen, I, I've seen, I don't practice DBT, but I, I've seen it be of such use to people that I would, I would be nervous that um, it would come off as though I would be discouraging it. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't experience you that way. I just think there's an awful lot of research done that that some of us call horse race studies, mm -hmm. you know, who's better and who wins, yeah. as opposed to more clinically useful research about what do all of these approaches have in common? What are the um, elements we can discern from these different angles of vision and different therapies that shed light on, on the underlying processes of helping people? It, it feels as though, um, you know, and to some extent, maybe not to an optimal extent, I think that that does occur. I think some of, you know, some emerging, emerging modalities are trying to, f to synthesize those common factors. But it does seem like a lot of psychoanalytic thinking is squeezed out of that. Um, and I think the reason that's unfortunate is also perhaps why it happens. It's because of the breadth and the depth uh, of what uh, psychoanalytic thinking seems to tackle, such as the, these um, the, the minutia of personality. It, it, almost like, well, that's just that's too much. That's too much to try to integrate. Into... <laughs> yeah, I I do think psychoanalysis has a somewhat European tinge. It, it, it didn't arise in America. I mean, Americans like practical problem solving. They want things to be either this or that. Uh, the European, mostly uh, Jewish sensibility that informed uh, psychoanalysis originally had more of this Talmudic, uh, well, on the one hand than on the other hand. And things can be both and, not always either or. And Paradox is interesting, and so on. That's not a typical American mindset. So uh, if you've been raised in much more of an American mindset, so what, you're going to complicate it with this angle of vision and that angle of vision? I just want to help this person. Give me the recipe. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, yeah, bringing up that kind of, uh, that kind of, you know, almost... Working things out 
in, in this more less uh, uh, less mechanical American way. I mean, I've 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 certainly uh, read less Freud than you, but um, I mean, it does sort of you know I, I you go I have the Freud reader and going through it, it does sort of read as an argument he's having with himself over several decades. Yes, that's right. And he made a lot of mistakes. I mean, Freud uh, was wrong about a number of things. But uh, the sweep of the man's mind was extraordinary. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if that's, that's something that's, that's lost in, in current times, is the uh, taking the chance of kind of making these conceptual mistakes. And maybe that's, that's why things aren't... I, you know, I... I I, 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 it's in a lot of ways a thing seems like things aren't thought of as deeply things aren't abstraction isn't really allowed quite as much yeah I think you may be right and some of that has to do with just the pace of contemporary life uh, even academia I was talking to Jonathan Shedler yesterday who's a beloved colleague um, who was saying that academic life used to involve enough time for reflection and now it's a series of deadlines one after the other uh, and you can barely keep up with it so thinking uh, is adequate space for thinking is not as common as it once was uh, I see we're, we're, we're coming up on time um, I, I you know I, uh, I, I I like to follow Shedler on uh, on Twitter uh, yeah, <laughs> he's a <laughs> prolific tweeter, um, and he just he just posted something about depressive personality style, and uh, he had mentioned, and this is something, I, it's something you might have written, you might have mentioned in your book. I, I've definitely heard it that it is the primary personality style that you see among mental health clinicians. Yes, that was found empirically by my friend Judy Hyde in a study that she did in Australia for her doctoral dissertation several years ago. Uh, it was she was trying to determine whether uh, therapists were wounded narcissists, which is a, a, a formulation Alice Miller had made in the 1980s, mm -hmm. or something else. And they and most of them turned out to be depressively organized, you know, self-critical, uh, sensitive. Um, sensitive to loss, sensitive to criticism, uh, move toward people rather than away from people, and so on. I, I wonder, I mean, I, I, I think maybe this will be uh, the last question I ask before I let you go, but um, what, what, what do you see as the utility of clinicians becoming more aware of their own personality styles, their own uh, personality organization. Um, you know, not just for them as people, but in their clinical work, because surely that would affect, that affects their interactions with their patients. Yeah, I think it's very critical because if we don't really have a sense of our own dynamics, our own psychologies, we tend to understand other people uh, within that particular light. So, um, for example, I was working with a, a paranoid man who said that he lost 
the sense of others having any continuity. Mm. And I thought uh, I was projecting my own uh, attitude toward loss, which I had a lot of losses in my life. And when I think of lack of continuity, I think of, oh, no, the person's disappeared. Oh, no, they've Mm. died. What he was trying to say was, he was worried about what Sullivan called the malevolent transformation. The other is still there, but has become a monster, a mm. persecutor. Uh, that's a very different thing. And so to try to a, a develop a therapy for that would be very different. You know, if I, if I assume that, for example, people connect via loving interest in the other, which is how I like to think I connect to the other, and I'm working with anybody with a psychopathic streak, I can't make a connection with that person by trying to be so-called empathic. They will take it as, this lady's weak. She's a snowflake. You know, I'm not going to trust anybody who doesn't demonstrate their power. Okay? So there are groups of people that you're not very good at helping if you don't understand your own personality and how other people might see the world very differently. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like um, it's it's almost another element of uh, examining the countertransference. It's not just what is it, it is the kind of the kind of question of like what is my particular lens that I see the world with? How is right. it, how is it refracting and uh, shaping my perception of this person? Definitely, and of course, you never fully uh, can see yourself. That's why you need to consult with colleagues who know you and your quirks and your limitations. Because you never get to the point of um, knowing enough in this field. Yeah, I, I, I always think that is, that's kind of, you know, in person-centered uh, therapy, that's that idea of, well, you're the number one expert on yourself. And I always, you know, it seems like the psychoanalytic approach is kind of like, well, you have certain insights into yourself, and then everyone else has certain insights into you that you might not have. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I think that's pretty valuable. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I, I... we, we should probably wrap up here, uh, but this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been fun. Thank you for having me.